Hi, folks. Welcome to Changing Arts, a podcast of conversations with people working on the ground in the arts industry to make change in their organizations and in our field. I'm Tom O'Connor. I'm an arts strategist and marketer, as well as a trained educator and social worker. Change happens at every level of the arts ecosystem, from the industry level to the community level and down to the individuals who get the job done. Each month, I'm sitting down with the people who are really making that change happen. Thanks for joining us. Our name is Minnesota Opera. That means we are representing this entire state. So we have to listen and be thoughtful about what we're doing and make sure it's actually something that is congruent with the values of the community. Welcome back folks to another episode of Changing Arts. Before we introduce our guest, there are two things I wanna tell you about. The first is that if you've listened to the podcasts and enjoy them, we would be very grateful if you would rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The second is that we are planning a listener question and advice segment for future episodes. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, either by me or by a guest, you can email it to us or send us a voice note at hello at tomocgroup.com. That is H-E-L-L-O at T-O-M-O-C-G-R-O-U-P dot com. And now for today's guest. We're joined today by Lee Bynum, a consultant with the Inclusion Firm and the Vice President of Impact for the Minnesota Opera. We'll talk about what his role entails, about his vision for how change happens in organizations as they seek to serve their whole communities, and how the work we do today can ripple out for the long term. In particular, I enjoyed talking with Lee about how we need to manage expectations within organizations. As we address the systems of exclusion that have been in place over generations, there is not a quick fix. So we talk about how to build momentum and continue to grow our circle of true believers as we push forward. We also talk about his history in the funding world and his entire multifaceted career in the arts, starting with the piccolo. I hope you enjoy this rich and insightful conversation with our colleague, Lee Bynum. So welcome, Lee Bynum, to Changing Arts. We're happy to have you. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here today. I'm looking forward to digging into lots of things in this conversation. We're going to talk all about your career and all about what you're working on now and what you're excited about and not excited about and all those kinds of things. (laughs) But we like to start with what we're calling our sort of icebreaker lightning round questions to, to help our listeners just get to know you a little bit before we jump into the questions. So for sure. you ready for those? Yes, sir. Okay. And I have not shared these with Lee in advance. So first question, what's one thing the arts industry needs more of? Huh. The arts industry needs more people in leadership who are from underrepresented backgrounds. Mm-hmm. What is one thing the arts industry needs less of? The arts industry needs less social media presence. Mm. What one word <laughs> describes your reason for working in this field? Commitment. Mm-hmm. And lastly, what do you wish you could tell your younger self when they were just starting out in this business? I would remind my younger self that patience is a virtue and it is the principal quality that is necessary to exist in the IDEA space and not get eaten up by everything. That's fantastic. So that's it for our lightning round questions. So that wasn't so bad, right? No, not at all. (laughs) Okay, good. I have have one more that's still an icebreaker, but you don't have to feel the pressure of time to answer this one. I'd love to start by asking, do you remember how and when you felt invited into the arts for the first time, either as an audience member, participant, anything? I kind of don't exactly. I'm from an artistic family and I had parents who were fairly indulgent in the sense that if there were any passions that we articulated having, my siblings and me, 
they would do everything that they could to make sure that we had every opportunity to explore and learn and be trained and get better. So I been heavily involved in the arts since I was about eight years old and don't always remember exactly how I got into it. But I do have a very specific memory of a Christmas when I was about 12 years old that I was explaining to my father why I wanted a piccolo. And it was something that just sort of didn't immediately make sense to him. But I remembered his explanation considering how expensive piccolos can be he said, if you can learn to play it and play it well in short order, I don't have a problem buying you this instrument or anything else. And that really did stick with me in terms of connecting hard work with passion, with having people have some kind of buy-in. And I learned how to play piccolo over the course of the fall before that Christmas and demonstrated to him that I would not drive him crazy with horrible sounds coming out of my room um, beginning <laughs> December 26th. And I did get that for Christmas and it ended up being a long tradition of getting a musical instrument pretty much every year of my growing up for Christmas. That is a fantastic story. Thank you for that. And right on theme, right? <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry that we didn't invite you to have a piccolo interlude in the center of this interview, but it's not too late, perhaps. Thank you for that. For sure. So you and I originally met because we were both consulting for the Flint Institute of Music in Michigan. I'm going to ask you to talk about your work more generally. We won't focus on the folks in Flint per se, but I was just struck in that conversation by the many sides to your work. So your consulting work, as well as your work as the VP of Impact at Minnesota Opera. So I'd love to talk about both but you do both of those things following time in the philanthropy sector. So we're going to talk about that too. So before I try to dig into my questions and whatnot, I'd love for you to have a chance to, for our listeners, just sort of draw the arc of your career because it is so multifaceted and I feel like I will not do it justice. So I would love to, <laughs> to hear you describe it. Sure. So I'll pick up post Piccolo. I went to college in New York City. I went to Columbia as an undergrad and a graduate student. And I specifically knew I wanted to move to New York because I had an interest in the arts. It was always hard for me to identify where I wanted to be specifically because I had grown up doing orchestra and I'd grown up doing theater and I'd grown up doing jazz band, a, a little dance here and there. And I just knew that it was a space that I wanted to inhabit. So I went to New York. I studied theater and music in undergrad and technically also in grad school, although I transitioned to being an historian of performance by the time I got to grad school. Immediately after college, I founded a nonprofit theater company with a couple of friends and produced stuff in New York City for about 10 years while also working as my day job in administration at Columbia, which also in turn facilitated me going back to school because it was a way of self-funding. Master's degrees are super, super expensive and even funded doctoral degrees tend to be super, super expensive. So that was my point of entree. Loved, love, love doing the producing work that gave me opportunities to write and direct and to learn quite a bit. And then from there, also got involved with producing dance and teaching, had the opportunity to move to Hong Kong for a while with my husband, who is also in the arts. He's a singer-composer. And that experience sort of shifted everything that I wanted to do. So after leaving Hong Kong, I came back to the States, worked at the Mellon Foundation for 10 years. I made grants broadly in diversity, 
in the main, it was in higher ed, but I always found ways to sort of insert my fingers into the art making side. And from there, got involved in producing works in the orchestra and then use my history degree and my passions to start doing a bit of dramaturgy. Throughout the entire time, I guess our audience can't see me. I am a Black queer person, and that representation never was far from my thinking. So I was doing this sort of EDI and access work the entire time with the art side. And after many years at Mellon, I started really thinking about how do you make sort of substantive long-term change? And that led me to the work at Minnesota Opera, where I lead the company's EDI work, our access work, our education work, and a lot of strategy generally, both in the art that we're producing and how we're showing up in terms of community engagement. Somewhere along the way, I started consulting. I'm, I'm not even sure when and how it happened exactly, because it, initially I was just chatting with people, and then it turned into chatting with people in more structured environments and then chatting with people for money. I naturally have a didactic personality, so it, it sort of happened. And I've been juggling all of this for the last couple of years, the dramaturgical, the academic, the consulting, and the mm -hmm. professional. And every once in a while, I still have opportunities to direct or write a libretto or score here and there. So I have my fingers in lots of things, and I really, really like it that way. That's amazing. Our last episode was actually all about multi-track arts careers. And so you're mm -hmm. kind of bringing me back to some of that conversation about how it is possible to be on a lot of tracks at once and still you know, move them all forward. So it's exciting to have another example of that in you. So thank you for that. I very much relate to your description of your evolution into consulting in terms of mm -hmm. that process. So <laughs> wanted to mention that as well. But I want to talk about your role at, at Minnesota Opera, which you've been in now for a little over a year. And, you know, I, I, I would put forward an assertion, which I want your thoughts on, but you know, on the surface, I think many folks think of opera as an art form as one of the the less, I'll just say, less progressive art forms mm -hmm. in our culture. So I first want to let you respond to that and let me know if you agree or disagree with your firsthand experience. But, but secondly, within that context, where did you really see the starting point for your work or the sort of beginning point when you considered joining an opera company? How did you sort of approach that on the way in? Sure. So I will say, and I love opera and I've loved opera as long as I can remember. I wasn't one of those kids that had never heard an opera until I was 17. That wasn't my story at all. I think it's sort of baked into the enterprise that we are a more conservative discipline. There is an almost necessary adherence to the canon in terms of how the field is structured, how folks are trained, how companies tend to make money. That doesn't allow us to be as forward-looking as, you know, perhaps our cousins in theater or in dance, right? There isn't the same commitment to what is new and those sort of commercial imperatives that propel theater into sort of redefining what it's pushing out at all times don't exist in the same way at opera companies where, you know, revisiting La Boheme or Carmen or Butterfly, if you know, you're, you're brave enough, right, can be the thing that really helps you to balance your books, right? So we're in a very different place. And I think that contributes to who's in our audience and how they think about what opera is. And then that in turn informs how people are trained. And I think that really means that 
we don't have the same kind of forces that are pulling us to introduce new folks into the art form or to refine and reinvigorate the genre with new ways of understanding how it works. And I think that can be a challenge because it it does put us in a position where we're not working in the same ways, right? So I do think that that conservatism is a fair observation. It's just more complicated in terms of how we got yeah. there and, and why some in some ways it's harder to move from that. So part of what was interesting to me about Minnesota Opera was that it was Minnesota Opera and they had been engaged in this EDI journey for five years before I applied, right? And they had lots of reasons for that. I think the Twin Cities is a really unique place in terms of the way that it understands itself, right? And that it's kind of a tub on its own bottom, right? It's not really being pulled by the same coastal hegemony that seems to happen in a lot of other places, right? So it's very much a community that looks at itself and its own needs when it thinks about how the arts are going to work here. So they had been on this journey. They had done a lot of really good work and the kind of work that honestly doesn't happen in a lot of places in the performing arts. It's not just uh, what they were doing was unique for an opera company or for classical music, which it certainly was, but their approach to it, the structured, thoughtful, tiered way that they were setting goals and really challenging themselves to be a different kind of community, cultural anchor for the 21st century was something that I found really, really inspiring. And that isn't to imply that they had everything figured out, but what they did have figured out was that they needed to do something different and needed to be reflective of the communities that they served and not just sort of the working the ways that they had always worked, right? And by the time I was interviewing with them, they were in a place where it didn't need to be articulated that if you have an all-white cast of something, it's an you know evidence that you haven't done something correct, right? Or they could look at their own staff and see there is clearly some diversification that needs to happen. Maybe there wasn't the immediate knowledge about how to make those things happen, but there was at least the understanding that this was not going to serve their needs and that there was a business imperative to getting this right and being differently representative. And I think those, for me, are the raw fundamental pieces of an organization that can move the needle and move it significantly in terms of its own awareness. So that was the company that I found, and I found a lot of people highly motivated, very interested, really committed, and demonstrating a lot of know-how and a lot of really profound thought and reflection into both where they stood as individuals and what the company could be if they could sort of harness this energy and then integrate it into operations, into artistic planning, and and just be a different kind of a company. And, you know, I will say, and hopefully this doesn't sound like I'm just, you know, sort of brown nosing. But I do think that our general director, Ryan Taylor, is one of those people who understands that people-centered leadership is the way that you make change, right? And the way that the conversations happen both at the time of my interview and continue to happen now, 15 months later, are very much around how do we show up for the community? How do we support our artists? How do we keep the community engaged and keep them feeling like we're reflecting something? and not just let's look at the bottom line, right? And be responsive to 
either chasing grants or merely giving donors what they want or just sticking with what we've always done. And I have mm -hmm. tremendous respect for that because in my consulting practice, that's really where I try to push leaders to end up. So it was very happy making to discover this company that had this kind of orientation. And I was certainly familiar with Minnesota opera before my husband, by training, is an opera singer. So we have a lot of opera in our lives. And I had already had the impression that, one, people at Minnesota sung really well. And I am still an artist first and foremost, so that was the thing I cared about. Whatever else is going on at a company, if the art isn't good, <laughs> then I really don't want to be there. And then secondly, their reputation for creating new work to me also really represented an opportunity to show up differently to a broader audience. And I thought, this is a place where I can work in the ways that I believe are effective, do some good work, and there's already an apparatus to make it happen. That's great. I want to drill into that a little bit more. This is a bit of a curveball question, but in terms of the level at which you're focused, you know, because so much of what you described is about impacts at all different parts of the system and the company. I'm curious because I think that roles like yours are still relatively new at a lot of organizations. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about the level at which you work. So for example, are you working primarily with the executive team and sort of helping them work within their individual teams on their own? Are you working more sort of, for example, like on the ground with some of their teams in artistic planning and all that kind of thing? I'm just curious sort of like how that manifests in the day to day. Yeah, that's a great question. Part of what was interesting about this particular role and the way that it was defined was that it was intended to break up the silos, right? So I am part of the team along with Karen Quisenberry, our vice president for production, and Joseph Lee, our vice president for artistic, and, and Ryan. We make artistic decisions, the four of us. So first of all, the fact that this wasn't one of those sort of like diversity officer roles that is very much siloed and, and is only looking at one thing, right? Secondly, the idea of leading with the values means that my unit, and I am very fortunate to have a, a larger team, there are nine of us in our department, and we are really tasked with a lot of that strategic thought leadership for the entire organization. Our function is to really make the values present in terms of what is happening on stage, behind the scenes, and in the audience. So that means that we function both like an internal consultancy between the departments helping with their own education around EDI and access issues, and then we do it externally, right? And we take some of what our charge is to think about with the resources that we have, the board putting all of these resources forward so that we do have this really robust department. We can think about what that means broadly in the field. We can think about the talent pipeline beginning with very, very young kids and how we contribute to that ecosystem. And then we also just think about what does it mean to be a well-resourced organization in a city that's been upended by racial injustice, right? And really trying to make a difference both with the art, but also just with individual people, right? We exist in a neighborhood. We are all human beings with lots of relationship and lots of interests. And we try to bring that idea into how we work as a company and then what it is that we do. So it's not always just about, hey, we're doing Don Giovanni. Let's make sure we have like the right kind of education guide. It's actually thinking about one, what does it mean to be doing Don Giovanni right now? 
right? In terms of everything happening in this country relative to racial and gender justice, for instance. But it also means how are we bringing new young people into understanding what opera can be? How does a production need to be staffed? How does it need to be cast? How do we need to talk about it in the media? What things do we need to own going into it, right? So there are communications pieces to it, community engagement pieces, lots and lots of listening to folks who work at the company and can reflect for us as this kind of a singer or artist of color, what space do I have for my own praxis given how the company is structured? What do we need to be thinking about? It's very much all of the above. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the only way it can work, right? The, the not yeah. being siloed and being positioned to have conversations with anybody in the Minnesota opera community who may benefit from a conversation, right? So even if that's a kind of a pulling someone aside and saying, hey, I noticed this interaction. Can we talk about how we got here? Maybe there's a way to improve this. Or Mm -hmm. if it ends up being, you know, one of those instances where we are appearing in front of folks and explaining what our long-term plans are to help benefit and develop the community. These are all parts of how you show up as a cultural anchor in a in a community and what sort of needs to contour the work that you're doing in order to last, right? You have Mm -hmm. to be in conversation with the people that you seek to represent. Our name is Minnesota Opera. That means we are representing this entire state. So we have to listen and be thoughtful about what we're doing and make sure it's actually something that is congruent with the values of the community. So well said. And when you talk about the long term, you know, I, I really have a question just about the pace of change in terms of managing your own expectations, but just really what you're experiencing. So much of what we're talking about when we're talking about systemic injustices, historical exclusions, we're talking about uprooting things that have been put in place over a long period of time, centuries in many cases. And we're still so young in this process by comparison in terms of uprooting them. So I guess my question to you is, how do you maintain that sort of sense of progress and momentum in grappling with these things that have taken root over such a long time in terms of managing your expectations for change? And do you agree with that sort of framing? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that on our team, we talk about a lot, right? The idea that the many social injustices that we sit with now took hundreds of years to institutionalize and systematize. And that's a big part of it, right? Talking about this as being a result of a series of things that were put into place for specific reasons and continue to be in place for specific reasons. None of this happened by happenstance. So really describing things in terms of historical systems, reminding ourselves that we are 400 years into a project here in the United States that really was designed around having a certain group in power at the expense of other groups. And then understanding that no one activity, experience, consultant process is going to untie that knot. And we say that a lot to each other to help manage expectations. I think from the pure administrative side, it becomes about setting measurable, obtainable goals that build nicely upon each other so that then folks involved can see their own power and can understand the power of the work in moving the needle 
But in order to do that, you can't say, we're going to put together this EDI committee and then we'll work for two years and then we will have solved racism in classical music, right? <laughs> you can't have conversations like that and you can't allow people to talk like that. You really do have to help people manage those expectations, right? Because you really do risk burnout from the true believers. And then you also risk those who are more dubious about the work using that as a wedge later to say, hey, we've been doing this thing for three years and we still have these problems. And I think you really have to sort of force people to think in terms of the long game and just remind them of how much work there is to be done and that you're doing it, right? But those articulating goals incrementally and thoughtfully and patting yourself on the back when you do hit your targets and then immediately identifying the next one and saying, okay, now we're going to work on this. I think it does help with that mm -hmm. process because it can be really, really overwhelming to think about. And not to get too far into the weeds on this, because we could spend a lot of time talking about this point, but I'm just curious with goals, incremental goals you might set in various areas, what does that look like in terms of the decision-making around those goals? Is it something where you're kind of facilitating that goal-setting process, or is it something that your team is responsible for establishing? I'm just curious what that looks like. It's different depending upon exactly what we're talking about, right? So some of them, that group of four that I described before, some of this is we're setting that kind of agenda, especially around the art making up the company and recognizing that my position can't be window dressing. So mm -hmm. being very vocal, being thoughtful, working closely with my colleagues to understand what the pressures are that pull at them. I have been very fortunate to have had a, a lot of jobs in, in my time and work in a lot of different contexts, corporate, for-profit, non-profit, academic, etc. So I have a, at least an orientation into what a lot of the issues can be across different units, right? And really thinking about, this is all about strategy, right? This is all about setting agendas. And sometimes that is me going into a situation and saying, here's the thing that we need to do, so here are a set of targets, right? Let's think about what is an appropriate or logical and obtainable number of X to aim towards in, in a given context, right? And thinking about not quotas or strange mandates that are not connected to the realities of what talent pipelines are, what our material resources are, how much time we have to demonstrate to audiences that we're working on something before we lose their confidence, and being really honest about those as forces, but then really setting those goals, right? And reminding people at regular intervals that we have set these goals. So sometimes that's me doing it. Sometimes it's working on a group. The impact department, we work across units at the company. We work across a lot of different committees and structures across the Twin Cities and the state and the field. And having a group of people on my team who are capable and confident and vocal, and also diplomatic, but vocal about sure. what needs to happen so that they can represent these in as many contexts as possible. And then also talking about the work, right? Mm -hmm. What's happening well, where we are experiencing challenges, where we feel like we have know-how, because I think there's also a power in finding the fellow travelers and mm -hmm. connecting the work more broadly so that we can say, yeah, this it, it's complicated diversifying our core of conductors and, you know, colleagues here in this place are having similar challenges, but 
here's what they did that worked, or here's what they did that didn't work. So let's sit with that so we can try something slightly different. Just being honest, being open with people, and not sort of devolving into demagoguery or pettiness or anger or sarcasm or any of the other things, right? Just really thinking about what does it mean to be deeply collaborative around this, to be patient, to be open, and not let people off the hook ever, mm-hmm. right? That's so well said. I mean, I resonate so much with a lot of what you're saying, but I particularly talking about the need for sort of that commonality among fellow travelers, as you said so well. I mean, personally, that's a big reason why we started this podcast. It's a big sort of galvanizing force behind some of the work we do in terms of building community among arts administrators. And regardless of what we're talking about, whether we're talking about pandemic, whether we're talking about racial reckoning, whether we're talking about a lot of different things, there's so much fear. And, you know, I said at the end of the conversation with Sally Kate on the last episode, you know, that that I try to remind myself that the opposite of fear is connection and that, you know, these opportunities we have to sort of connect the dots between people doing similar work or at least having similar goals is where so much of the power is. I just really resonate with that idea and wanted to name that. I want to change gears a little bit and go to a sort of a different place in the sort of change-making landscape, and that is to your role prior to Minnesota Opera, where you worked at the, the Mellon Foundation. So before we start talking about some specific questions around funding and whatnot, I'd love to just talk for you individually, what has been the biggest change in going from that position in the field to the current position you're holding? Yeah, um, you know, Mellon was a really extraordinary experience. I mean, I was I was there for 10 years, it's a quarter of my life. Um, <laughs> and I learned a lot about how organizations work and sort of the forces that guide decision-making and also a lot about strategy at a very high level. What foundations don't do is the work though, right? You know, there's a lot of defining what something is Mm -hmm. in a moment. There's a lot of guiding and shaping and responding to, but the work isn't happening there. And the longer I was at the foundation, the more I realized that I wanted to be involved with the work and what kind of work I wanted to be doing and where I wanted to be doing it, right? And what I wanted those daily struggles to be if I wanted to work somewhere where every day would be re-articulating the basics, right? Or if I wanted to go somewhere where there was a deep engagement in really thinking about what it meant to be diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible in art making. So that's been the biggest shift going to a place where that work is happening every day, those conversations are happening every day, and people really own that it is their job, irrespective of where they work in the company, whether it's patron services or IT or, you know, working with the orchestra and the chorus, that it is their work to be engaged with IDEA values. And that's the thing that I really loved. And being at a foundation for so long, watching it happen, seeing what made folks successful or not successful was almost a daily reminder that let me get my ducks in a row. Let me learn a lot more about the field and places that are doing good work so that then I can identify an appropriate place to land. And I think it played out as well as could be expected, honestly. It sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm trying, and I've never, full disclosure, I've never worked in the funding end of things. I work a lot with, I will say I work a lot on uh I won't call them funder-driven projects, but certainly projects that have certain accountability from various funding bodies. And it's always fascinating to me to see how 
similar to what you were saying about the foundations not doing the work, see how the idea around the work sort of skews toward the theoretical, skews toward the philosophical, Mm -hmm. and loses sight of the practical, and loses sight of like the true operation of what it means to be on the ground doing that work. And what a disservice that ends up being in the end where when resources get sort of funneled toward purely the accountability mechanism and not to the actual work itself. And um, I don't know if you have any into that, but it's something that I see so often. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's that's the challenge of being at a foundation too, right? You're working, especially at a place like Mellon, that's smaller. I know Ford and Gates have more people who work there by orders of magnitude. So they may be in a different situation. But when I was at Mellon, you know, when I was working in the diversity unit, there were like five people on our team. And, you know, we had hundreds of grantees and, and we're trying to figure out what is an initiative that we could develop that would be manageable for us as the small number of people managing goo gobs of money and trying to be responsive to the needs of a large and diverse group of grantees and, and give something that was capacious enough for them to do the work that they needed to do. And we could still guide it and make assessments around if it were addressing the macro issue that we saw. And I think that that can be incredibly complicated because it doesn't allow you to get into the weeds and you really are just looking at things at the level of the ideological. And then when you work with an arts organization, I mentioned to you before, I'm the chair of the activist orchestra in New York, The Dream Unfinished. That is a a fairly young organization started in 2014 and every resource matters, right? And what we would need from an organization like Mellon is money and space, not so much a mandate around, here's how we want you to do this, or even here's what the end goal is. Instead, just a recognition of, you do good work, let us support that work, right? And that was the thing that we sometimes heard, and I would hear it while I worked there and thought, we do not have the apparatus in place just to give people money to do stuff. (laughs) Like we are just not set up to manage that. And I think that disconnect is a bit of a challenge, right? And I think, you know, the ways that a lot of foundations tend to get around that are going through service organizations or other kinds of re-granters that then can really target what that work is and can sort of engage and watch at a different level than working at a a large or very well-resourced foundation can do. But I think the need that organizations have really is just for operational support and space being made in a field for smaller organizations or medium-sized organizations to move to those next level. And then in addition to that, sort of a development of the that talent pipeline of leadership such that folks who are doing good work at those smaller grassroots organizations then have a professional path to being able to bring that work to more of the legacy organizations, right? So that some of that really good thinking, that hard work, those changes that are happening, especially at the level of inclusion and equity and access, can then happen at those bigger organizations. And I think that's a real need. Because Mm -hmm. if then you can get the biggest players to be operating on the same value system, that really shifts, A, how foundations are going to respond to it, but it also shifts then what smaller orgs do and what folks growing up who are thinking, if 
this is a real person, right? That I want to go into arts administration <laughs> as an adult, right? When they can see what some of this looks like in real time, but you can only see that if it is the big players who are doing a lot of that work. And, you know, in the last two years, that has driven more of how I thought about consulting, really mm. that need to make some of this work show up in a different population of organizations. So fascinating. And I think a lot about that ecosystem of the smaller organizations and the largest organizations, both in our consulting work, but in our executive search work in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, how we're seeing folks proving themselves or demonstrating their abilities in smaller organizations and, and kind of making the case for what that leap is into the large organization. It certainly is a different kind of system. It's a different kind of culture and whatnot. But so much of the growth, so much of the advancement is happening in places that are not the quote unquote big places. There's so much for everybody, regardless of size, to learn from one another. Absolutely. Um, and that's exciting and validating to hear, honestly. You've started to answer this question, really, but I just want to put a finer point on it in terms of just in terms of the role of funders in our field, you know, no one, most of the folks listening to this podcast, at least if my inbox is any indication, <laughs> are, folks, are, are folks from nonprofits themselves. So they do not need to be told that foundations and funders in general hold a lot of power in this field. So I, I want to just give you a chance to you know, say to anyone in the funding community listening to this podcast, how do you hope they'll support or continue to support the work of organizations and grantees and this time specifically? Yeah, more direct and open support for just the actual operations and art making of organizations and individuals. I think that is really, really key. People know how to make their art, right? But what they really tend not to have are the material resources to make that happen. So I think much, much more of that, right? And then also broadening your lists of organizations that you choose to champion in public is going to be really important. I think we rely a lot on lists in terms of how we talk about equity work, right? And I have lots of conversations with folks who are saying, oh, you know, February's coming up and I don't really know a lot of Black composers. Can you help me with a list, right? And I think what that says to me is that the processes themselves are off, right? Because mm -hmm. if you have an equitable process, then you don't really need the list that comes around in terms of just triaging a process that doesn't really reflect a basis in equity itself. And I think the more we can sort of push in those two areas, I think the better off we will be as a set of related industries because we'll be thinking about the work differently, who's doing the work and what it means to be supportive of the work. Mm -hmm. That's great. I feel like all of these questions could be their own conversations in their entirety, but <laughs> I will keep myself to my stated time limit and keep rolling. So really, we're actually at our final question. I really just want to come back to the, you know, when we think about the larger remit of this podcast, Changing Arts, and thinking about how we're moving our field forward. We often talk about how it starts, really, any change at any level starts at the individual level. So we want to give you a chance, just with kind of an open floor, like what invitation do you want to extend to our listeners for something that they can put into practice, a change they can put into practice for our field, really starting with themselves? Sure. I would say... Be honest with yourself about what it is that you do and do not know. I think having some sort of honesty about, I am not a person who is well-versed in this part of my field, or I don't know a lot of the folks who are doing this kind of work, or I have not had very many opportunities to engage with these kinds of diverse creators. 
and allow that to inform some of your next steps, right? So sort of, again, moving away from this idea of list and instead of thinking about engagement, right? And if you can engage differently and more broadly with people who are doing the work in somewhere very targeted, right? You may be working in dance and may have to acknowledge, I don't know any trans choreographers, right? And the minute you say that, then that gives you the opportunity to learn who they are, to learn and experience their work, and then you can champion it in a different way. And I think if each of us can sort of start in that place, it then opens up who is in our Rolodex, so to speak, who we can refer for work, who we can celebrate, how we can think about things differently. And then ultimately that will start moving the needle. If we don't have these folks' names in our mouths and we can't really do a lot to support their careers, and if we're not supporting their careers, we're not actually changing what really has been, to your earlier point, systems of exclusion, systems of intentional exclusion for a very long time. Mm, Thank you for that. I mean, it makes me think a lot about, at the individual level, I spend an awful lot of time talking about the whole concept of growth mindset versus fixed Mm -hmm. mindset and that whole Carol Dweck framework. And I think that in many ways, when we think about our relationships or the folks we engage with or the artists that we support and all that kind of thing as a sort of fixed collection, as opposed to like a constantly evolving, constantly growing network that we're cultivating over time, I think it in some ways kind of sets us free because I think that so often... I do think a lot of folks have a lot of doubt in their ability to continue growing. And I think that what they know now and what they have now and who they know now is all they're going to have. And it's about sort of continuing to, to push that out. So kicked up a lot for me to think about. Well, yeah, this has been a great conversation. I really, uh, I mean, in the context of our careers, I feel like I've known you for two seconds, but I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm so looking forward to continuing to learn from you and share ideas. And I just really appreciate your generosity of coming on the podcast and sharing this with our listeners. So I hope it's been a fun conversation for you. It certainly has been for me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for listening and, you know, being open to my perspectives because I I think that's a really, really generous thing that you're doing, having people on and giving them an opportunity to talk about what's important to them. So thank you. It is certainly my pleasure. And I'm, as far as I'm concerned, it's a gift and I'm always happy to receive gifts. So anyway, thank you so much, Lee. Take care. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Changing Arts. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to today's guest, Lee Bynum. This podcast is brought to you by Tom O'Connor Consulting Group. Production coordinator is Christine O'Connell. Editing and music is by Roy Latham of Latham Media Supply. And graphics are by Morgan Bosher. Thanks as well to Ronnie Haywood, Edie Demas, and Jordan Sanford. We will see you next time.